Lord Jesus, we've come to remember you. We've come to prepare our hearts to receive the King. So just come and have your way in us this morning, Lord. May you make your presence known. May we be different because we've been in your presence together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I feel like the kids heard the permission and were like, oh good, I've been holding it in this whole time. So uh, we have been walking through Advent, which depending on uh, your church background and where you come from, may be a very old thing that you're used to. For me, this is my first time walking through Advent. Uh, And so we have been reflecting on the different things that come to us during the Christmas season. The first week of Advent, we focused on hope, the hope that we have received through the coming of our King. The hope we have moving forward, because if he came then, he'll come now. Do you guys remember this? The second week, we focused on peace and preparation. There's an incredible peace, which actually we're going to touch on again this morning, that comes to us through the coming of our king. And we have hearts that are prepared to rejoice, to remember, to celebrate well the coming of our king. Last week, we reflected on joy. The joy that comes, because again, if he came in the middle of dark times then, remember the Christmas story wasn't just this cute little thing, it was a difficult time for the people involved in it, yet they had joy because they relied on the promises that God had given, and we are called to do that same thing during this Christmas season. And today, Christmas Eve, we focus on love. We reflect on the love that the Christmas story represents. Most people would associate Christmas with love, agreed? Whether they come to church or not, whether they honestly even know the story of Jesus or not, Christmas, the Christmas time, is pretty closely associated with love. Most people would even be able to quote a Bible verse from the Christmas story, whether they knew it was from the Bible verse or not. And they would say something to the effect of, Christmas is about peace on earth, and goodwill toward men, right? They're they're referencing the old King James Version. The angel came and announced to the shepherds, peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Most people would hear that and go, yeah, exactly. Christmas is a time to remember love. Christmas is a time to love your neighbor, right? Christmas is a time to be moved toward, toward generosity. We hear this peace on earth And people think of like, man, imagine a world where there was no war. Imagine a world where there was no infighting within families, within neighborhoods and communities, or country to country. Imagine a world where there was peace on earth. This is the time where we come together and we go, man, can you even imagine a world where we focused more on what we had in common than where we were different? Christmas is a time to remember peace on earth. And goodwill toward men. Christmas is a time of family and togetherness. A time to come together and to love not only those directly in your family, but your neighbors, your friends, everyone that you're acquainted with. To be moved towards love and generosity. Think about most every Christmas story that you've heard. Nowadays, if you heard it on the Hallmark Channel, it's about finding love in a small town, you know. Fine. I'm going to take a minute. So 
I really struggle with rom-coms anyway, but Hallmark movies bug me. And you want to know the thing that bugs me the most? Yes, someone does. Okay. Here's the thing that bugs me the most. Every time they go from the big city to the small town, these people have never seen a small town before. They always like show some drone footage of like Milwaukee. And they're like, oh, what a tiny place we're coming home to. And, you know, and there's like millions of people there. And they're like, it's hard coming to a small town. And every time I'm like, really? <laughs> like they've never even seen a small town before. That's the thing that bugs me the most, okay? The fact that Santa was the janitor the whole time and whatever, like fine. <laughs> they can have it. But when you think about most of our traditional Christmas stories, back, we're getting back on track here. It's typically about someone moving from a miserly place to a place of generosity. Think of Scrooge, one of the Christmas Carol, one of the most famous Christmas stories. This guy was absolutely selfish. Like he made someone work on Christmas Eve. Can you even imagine it? Kim told me not to say this, but I'm going to say it. In my Christmas story, you guys are the bad guys because you're making me work on Christmas Eve. Did you ever think about that? You're Scrooge. I told you it'd be fine. <laughs> she literally told me, don't do that. But, but, but what happens throughout the story? Scrooge is reminded that Christmas is a time of generosity. And he, at the end, it's a, it's a cooked goose for everyone. And he comes out and he's super generous and he's changed because of the Christmas time because Christmas is about peace on earth and goodwill toward men. <laughs> Come on, me and Tiny Tim over there, we need it. But what if I told you that this wasn't actually what the Christmas story was about? This is what most people would think the Christmas story was about. This is what we've been told over and over and over that the Christmas story is about. But what if this isn't actually what the Christmas story is about? Now, now hear me, a little side tangent, not that any of these are bad things. It is peace on earth, an end to war and to fighting and to strife, is that a good thing? Is that a biblical thing? Yes. It is goodwill towards one another, loving your neighbor, is that an important thing? Yes. Is that a biblical thing? 100%. So I'm not trying to say these are bad. What I'm trying to say is these are not actually the original focus of Christmas. These are not the main focus of Christmas. These are undeniable biblical themes. We actually spend most of the rest of the year talking about loving your neighbor well. It's a, it's a command. It's huge. But Christmas is not primarily about love your neighbor. Again, it comes from the King James, which is an over 400-year-old translation. And here's the whole verse in the King James. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Let's just start somewhere. When, whenever you hear peace on earth, goodwill toward men in a song, in a movie, in a whatever, they leave off that first part, right? Glory to God in the highest. Then, peace on earth and goodwill toward men. But here's the thing. The King James is the only translation that I've been able to find that actually chooses this wording. Peace on earth goodwill toward man. Again, it's 400 years old. Maybe it meant something a little different back then, but now it's been kind of co-opted to mean be generous. Don't fight with your mother-in-law over Christmas. That's a January thing. It's okay the rest of the year, but not in December. 
be generous because year-end giving really matters, okay? Like, it's kind of been co-opted in that way. But here's the way that every other translation uh, translates this passage, something like this. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Or it'll say something like, peace among those on whom his favor rests. Do you see the difference there? This isn't just this, hey, no more fighting on earth thing. This is those, there are certain people with whom God's favor is going to rest and may peace be on those people. It's a very different focus. And here's the thing, we suck at multitasking. We're, very, we're not very good at it. We think, well, Christmas can be about a lot of things, right? Not really. If we try to focus on too many things, if Christmas becomes about this and generosity and, 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 we water it down and we start to miss it pretty quickly, like happens for most people, Christmas kind of becomes about nothing. Christmas becomes about Christmas. The primary focus is different than what the world has told us that it is. It's not peace on earth and goodwill toward man. Again, as good and even as biblical as those things are, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace amongst those with whom he is pleased. Jesus did come to bring peace. The angel is announcing this to the shepherds and he goes, I don't want you to miss it. Here's what's happening. What is happening right now, the birth of our king is gonna bring glory to God in the highest, in the heavenly realms. And let me tell you what it's gonna do on earth. It's gonna bring peace but not the kind you might be thinking of. What kind of peace were the angels announcing at Jesus' birth? I'll tell you, it wasn't that this country's not gonna war against that country, because has that continued to happen? Probably even more so than it was in the past. So either the angel was wrong, the angel was a liar, or he was talking about a different kind of peace. So what kind of peace was he talking about? Okay, a peace with God. Peace among those with whom his favor rests. Like most things, there's a backstory that is happening in the Christmas story. Oftentimes, we, we just tell kind of the cute little story about the baby coming in the manger and all of that kind of stuff. But Jesus wasn't born into a vacuum. There, there was a much larger story happening that if we miss that, Christmas kind of, yeah, yeah, it's a happy time and family, yay. We have to understand the backstory that he was born into. The story of Jesus' birth was a part of a much larger narrative that started thousands of years before. And it's a story like most good stories that has ups and downs. It's a story of betrayal and of separation. You see, thousands of years before Jesus came as a baby, God created everything. So going all the way back to the very beginning, before time even began, God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit were hanging out going, wouldn't it be awesome if we had someone to share this with? This vibe we got going, did I say that right? Yeah. <laughs> they were vibing together, okay? And they thought, wouldn't it be awesome if we had people to share this with? And one of them, who knows, said, I have a great idea. Let's create people and let's invite them into this thing we got going on, this perfect relationship that we have. And so you go all the way back to Genesis chapter one. God speaks the very world into existence. There was nothing, there wasn't even time. 
But God says, and now. Time begins. He speaks the universe into existence, and he goes, you think this is awesome? He goes through all of the, the days of creation. He goes, this is good, this is good, this is good. But check this out. And on the last day, he creates mankind. He breathes life into our bodies, and he says, this is very good. Look at the, he stepped back, he looked at the universe, and he went, cool, but I can do better. And so he creates man, and he goes, this is it. This is what I was after. A man, and then he creates a woman, someone to invite into this perfect relationship. And it goes good. We don't have how long, a week, a month, a couple years. We don't know. But they're in this perfect place called the Garden of Eden. And every day, God comes and he walks with them and they talk together and it's perfect. And there's only one rule in the garden. What's the rule in the garden? There's, don't eat from any tree? Look, guys, this whole garden is yours. Everything you can think to do is in bounds except this one thing. Don't eat from this one specific tree. If you do, you'll die. Okay? And they hear it and they go, oh, yeah, it's a big tree. Got it. No problem. Again, we don't know how long it lasts, but eventually the enemy comes and tempts them. Did he really say that? Are you really going to die? No one dies from eating fruit, right? Like, come on. It's not a big deal. And so they, they take the chance. You know what? Maybe God is withholding something from us. Maybe he's trying to keep something good from us. And so they take the fruit and they eat it. And instantly things are different. Instantly they're ashamed. They know that they have broken the rules. They, all of a sudden they have an idea. We have sinned. And they hide from God. You know the story. God comes in and says, why are you hiding? What has happened? He already knows, but he just, he's trying to bring them into it. We broke the one rule. We ate the fruit. We rebelled against you. They didn't say this, but we know this now looking back. We committed treason. Our king gave us an order and we disobeyed it. And since then, relationship with mankind and God has been broken. Sin has consequences. God said, only perfection can be near me. And since you have chosen imperfection, you have chosen rebellion, our relationship is forever changed. It's broken. They had, to, they had to leave the garden. I mean, all kinds of, like you, it was forever different. In fact, the world itself was forever different because we chose sin. And it's easy to look back and go, hey, we didn't choose it. Adam and Eve chose it. What did we do wrong? Let's be real. Ever told a lie? Ever taken something that wasn't yours? Ever judged somebody in your heart? I mean, we can go on and on. We have all rebelled. We've all committed treason. And our relationship has been broken ever since. That perfect relationship that he invited us into in the very beginning, we broke it. Now, God didn't just sit up there and go, well, it is what it is. They made their choice. He loves us so much that he has forever been coming back toward us. And so the relationship is broken. They're out of the garden. All kinds of, now they eat by the sweat of their brow and life is hard where it wasn't before. But he goes, but I, I still don't want you to be alone. And so he comes and he starts making a way for them to come back to him. Let me, he, let me give you the law, okay? You couldn't handle one rule. Let me give you hundreds. 
now that you're aware of what sin is, let's spell this thing out. And so he goes through and he says, look, here's all the things you can't do. Here's all the things you need to do. And here's even what to do when you inevitably break the laws I told you not to. He's trying to draw them back to himself, but we're dense. The, the Israelites are, are commonly referred to in the Bible as a stiff-necked people. They were proud against God, and they were going to do things their own way. And so they had this habit of, we come back and we go, oh, God, we love you. We're so happy for you. Oh, what's that? And then they walk away, and then they go, oh, right, right, you're it. But, oh, I really like that. And there's this constant coming back, falling away, coming back, falling away. The Father continued to move back towards us, and we continued in rebellion. There's a story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15 that I think captures what God has always desired to happen since the fall. It's the story of the prodigal son, or in some translations, it's called the lost son. And it goes like this. Let's read this together. Jesus was teaching, and he also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that I have coming to me. Let me, real quick, in case you haven't heard this before, what that means is, hey, Dad, let's pretend like you're dead. Give me my inheritance now. I'm tired of you. I don't want to live with you anymore. I want to treat you like you're dead. So give me my inheritance now so I can go do what I want to do. Okay, that's, that's what that means, asking for his share of the estate. So he, the father, distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all that he had, and he traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs, the lowliest job. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up and I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and he went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and filled with compassion and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. The son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. Let's celebrate with a feast, because the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This is a beautiful story, right? For, we kind of like that the son learns his lesson. You know, there's, there's a whole other part to this story about the older brother, which many of us can identify with. We like that part, but the focus of the story really is the father. Who broke the relationship? The son. What did the father do when he saw him coming? Did he sit back and go, well, let's see how this goes? No, he ran to him. He wouldn't let anything Keep him from his son. And the son starts into his thing. Father, I have sinned against you. And you go and see the father going, we don't have time for that. Bring a ring. Bring a robe. Kill that calf that we've been waiting, the celebration calf. Kill it. We're throwing a party. 
The father has been waiting for the son to return, and at the first sign of his turning, the father runs to him. This is the story that God has been longing to tell since the beginning, since the Garden of Eden. He has been longing to tell this story of the son turning to him and him running to the son. But there was a problem. Even as Jesus was telling this story to the Jewish people, it was impossible. Jesus was telling them, here is God's desire. He said, the kingdom of heaven is coming, and here's what it's going to be like. And he's going, Here, here's what God wants to happen. But there was a problem. Even as he was speaking these words, this story was impossible. Because here's the thing about our loving Father in heaven. The Father is love, but the Father is also justice. You see, God has these many facets to him. He is love and grace and mercy, and he is also justice and wrath. And what God is unable to do is turn off parts of himself. You know what? I'm going to let love win in this one. Forget about justice. He is unable to do that. He would no longer be God if he did that. And think, we know this. If there was an earthly judge who just loved people so much that every murderer that came up and was convicted, he went, yeah, but go home. I just, I love you. And Prison seems like it's terrible, so just go home. We would call for this man's job, if not more, right? Like, that's a terrible judge. No one wants that. And our Heavenly Father is a good judge. He's not able to turn a blind eye to our sin, to our rebellion, to our treason. It had to be dealt with. And so as Jesus was telling this, the Father longed to come running to us, but our relationship was still broken. We were still guilty. We were still imperfect. And so he was unable to come and wrap us in his arms as he has longed to do since the garden. So he came up with a plan. He would not be thwarted. He would find a way to satisfy both his love and his justice. Not turning one off so that the other but finding a way to satisfy his desire to come to us and his need to punish our rebellion. And so we have John 3.16, a passage that is so familiar to all of us. And if you think about it, this is a Christmas passage. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He looked at us, his beloved creation, that we had separated ourselves from him, and his heart was so broken, he said, I know what I'll do. I'll send my own son. It's hard for us because we talk about the son of God and God, but they're actually, they're one, but different at the same time. It's a whole other thing. He said, I will come down and pay the price for them. Justice has to be satisfied. The punishment for treason in every country in the world is the same. What is it? Death. We had committed cosmic treason. We all deserve the punishment of death. And he said, I will come and serve their penalty for them. 
I will come and die the death that they deserved. I love it. Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but to save it. God was so in love with his creation that he decided to sacrifice himself because of it. Sometimes when we think of Christmas, and again, when we only focus on the baby in the manger and all that, and it's cute, we can almost think like Jesus came just to spend time with us. He just kind of wanted to see what it would be like to be human. And so he came and he put on flesh. But when you look at his birth as a part of the larger story, he came with a plan. Jesus, listen, was born to die. Since before the miraculous conception, since before the angel came to Mary and said, you're about to be with child in a miraculous way, the plan was this baby will be born and will one day die to pay for the sins of others. Christmas and and Easter are inseparable. Two sides of the same coin. If he doesn't come, he can't die. If he came and it wasn't to die, it was pointless. We're still in our sin and without hope. The Father is still unable to come running to us. He was born so that he could one day die to pay the penalty for my sin and for your sin so that our loving Father could come running to us. The Christmas story is actually the beginning of a rescue mission. Again, it's not just cute in the manger, awesome. It's God going behind enemy lines. It's God going into dangerous, hostile territory to rescue back those that he loves. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins in him. We have been rescued from enemy territory and brought into the kingdom of light. All because God chose to go behind enemy lines. He chose to come as a baby so that he could die as our king. Peace on earth to those with whom his favor rests. To those who respond to what Jesus has done for us, we have been offered peace. This wasn't some blanket peace where, again, God was just like, yeah, no more fighting, it'll be great. But he went, look, I'm going to take steps that... No one has even dreamed of so that everyone who hears of it and responds will experience peace with me. We'll be able to experience the love of the Father. We'll be taken from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of life. The Christmas story is the Father's plan to get his children back from a life of bondage and death. Going behind enemy lines to perform history's greatest jailbreak. My favorite telling of the Christmas story comes actually from the book of John. And in the book of John, you don't have angels and mangers and all of that kind of stuff. John is kind of getting to the heart behind the Christmas story. And he says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Life was in him, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness did not overcome it. Do do you hear the going behind enemy lines, the rescue? Like, the light came into the darkness to rescue us. He goes on in verse 9. 
the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. This is still true today. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Children born not of natural descent or of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He was seen, or we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. The father could not stand to be separated from us. And so he himself came into the darkness. Even though he knew he would be spit on, he would be beaten, he would be killed, he also knew he would not be overcome. No matter how bad the darkness pushed back against him, light would prevail so that those who respond, those who receive him, could become children of God. That we would have the opportunity to be the lost son who goes, what am I doing? And to turn back and find a father running to us. The Christmas story is this pivotal point in history. There's a reason why we keep time differently before Jesus and after. Because it changed human history. God was no longer distant. We now have the ability to run to our Father. And for our Father to run to us. Because Jesus came. Because light came into darkness. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Sometime... Just take a few minutes and sit and try to imagine. Like, I can't even picture heaven. I don't think, none of us can perfectly, but even in my just human way, trying to picture heaven and go, making the decision, today's the day I leave that and I come here. Like, not only here, first century here. There's no phones, there's no Wi-Fi, there's no plumbing, okay? Leaving heaven, they probably had that stuff in heaven back then. Who knows? And coming here, Think of the love that it would take to drive you to that. Think of the love the Father must have to leave everything, not only just to come to earth, to come to earth to die. Christmas is not about loving families and, and being generous to our neighbors, not primarily. Should we be loving and generous during this time of year? Of course. Should we be loving and generous this time of year because it's this time of year? No, that makes no sense. But love and genera generosity have always been meant to be a response to what he did for us. The reason that that has kind of become a focus at Christmas is because look at how loving and generous he was to come to us. Our natural response should be love and generosity to those around us, but it only comes through remembering what he's done. He is the first cause, and we simply respond out of that. When we were still his enemies, when we were still actively cursing his name and in rebellion, he came to us. And he didn't come as some wrathful judge to give us what we deserve. He came to give us the thing that we deserved the least. Romans 5.8 says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still far off in a land squandering what we had taken from him, 
We hadn't even thought we should turn and go back home to dad yet. He already then came to die for us. Christmas is a time to stop and remember the father's love for his children. A love so great that he would sacrifice himself. When we deserved it the least, he came to be with us. One of the things that we most often remember at Christmas comes from Matthew chapter 1. Now all this took place, speaking about Jesus' birth and all of this, to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. When we deserved it the least, he came to us to be with us. And this changes everything. So as we think about this Christmas story and this Christmas time, again, loving family, good. Generosity, good. Gift giving and receiving, good. But this is the time to remember just what lengths the Father went to to be with us. To put on flesh, to experience the horrors of this world, and ultimately to die so that we could be with him. So I'd like to just take a moment and just sit in this for a minute. Before we move on, we're going to come to a time of communion as a way of remembering. But I want to just create a moment of space. Sometimes during Christmas, a minute of silence is really, really difficult to come by because there's so much other stuff going on. So I want to just give you a gift of, of just a minute to just sit and to ponder what the Father has done on our behalf. So by way of response, a way that we have been given an ancient way to remember the love the Father has for us is through communion. So we're gonna end our service with a time of communion. Again, his birth is the beginning of our communion story. He loved us so much to come in the form of a babe, knowing where it would lead. But his love for us was greater, listen, than any fear of death, any fear of pain. This is how much he loved us. The bread represents a body broken for our sin. The blood represents, his, or the, excuse me, the, the juice represents his own life blood poured out for us. Listen, the blood that we deserve to bleed, the death that we have earned, he has taken. And so at Christmas, let's remember that this is the love the Father has. Again, not just a cute story, but a story of redemption, a story of a father going to the very ends of the earth to rescue back his children. So I'm going to ask the music team to come. I'm going to pray over our communion elements and then we're going to sing a couple songs and you're invited to just come as you're ready. As, as we always do when we take communion, I'm going to ask you to, to take a moment and allow the Lord to examine your heart. The Apostle Paul warns us of taking communion in an unworthy manner and as we always say, that doesn't mean if you've sinned today, this week, this month, then you're unworthy and unwelcome. What it means is if we have those areas of sin that God is placing his hand on and saying, give this up to me, turn from this, but we're still holding them, harboring them, saying, no, that's mine. 
it's an unworthy thing. It's hypocrisy to thank him for his death because of our sin and to hold on to our sin at the same time. And so what we want to do is just take a moment and offer him, Lord, would you come and examine my heart? Is there areas of sin that I'm holding on to and you're calling me to let go? If so, do business with him right where you're seated. You can go from unworthy to worthy in that amount of time. It's simply a heart change. Lord, I agree that is sin. Would you take it? And then come and celebrate what he has done. Does that make sense? So let's take a moment again, just right where you are, and allow the Lord to examine your heart.